0: Welcome to our final episode of season one. Wow. Thank you for showing up and helping us grow. To lead us out and deeply into our bliss body, we are graced to have Susanna Harwood Rubin share her time and stories with us. Susanna's bold yet humble mission is creativity and beauty. And she sure does embody both of them on every level. Susanna is both a scholar and a mystic of this world and of its essence. I imagine the rabbit hole of her mind is deep and a winding adventure of the heart, pure and simple. Curiosity and wonder are our guides for this conversation. Let's dive into the Bliss Body.
1: Today, we're talking with Susanna Harwood Rubin, Susanna is the author of Yoga 365, Daily Wisdom for Life on and Off the Mat, published by Chronicle Books, and Looking at Matisse and Picasso, published by the Museum of Modern Art. Combining her life as a writer, artist, and yoga teacher, her personal practices are rooted in South Indian philosophy, including mudra, mantra, meditation, and myth which she integrates into her courses. Susanna delights in helping her people access their self-expression, guiding them on personal creative journeys to produce new work, while introducing practices and rituals to support their growth. Based in New York City, Susanna teaches internationally and was a pioneer in online courses for both writers and yogis, introducing Writing Your Practice in 2010. She created the first art and writing courses for the Museum of Modern Art in the late 90s and early 2000s, and has written for numerous art and yoga publications. She has been featured on MSNBC Today, HuffPost Live, Mantra Yoga and Health, Yoga Journal, Marie Claire France, and more. Susanna believes in the power of art and creativity to heal and to inspire and believes that everyone has a story waiting to be told. Just this alone, the the alliteration of the offerings, the myth, mudra, meditation, mantra, just turns me on, it lights me up. We all do have stories.
0: Um, uh, When did you embark on this journey, this new journey and why? Like was, were you on a deliberate um, spiritual quest or? Did it evolve or how did it evolve into what you offer now and into the inspirations for your books and your teachings?
2: Um, meaning how did I get involved with yoga so much? Spiritual practice. Oh, yeah, spiritual practice.
0: practice. Um, and that deep study of the goddesses. I mean, they're just so well versed in all of them and the different oh, thank you. stories. So where, how did this begin? Yeah. Um, well, I've been teaching yoga
2: for about 20 years. Actually, it'd be 20 years in January. Um, but I've been practicing for much longer than that. I practiced, I found it as a teenager and it gave me a lot of calm. Um, and it was very like, it wasn't yoga the way, you know, it kind of came into being in the 2000s. Um, it was much more like, you know, do a pose, lie down for a while, <laughs> like sit, meditate. You know, it was very really, like, now do a headstand. Now do, there was no sequence. It was just like, whatever, you know. And, um, but I loved it, and it spoke to me, and it calmed my um, my teen angst, and helped me steady in a lot of ways. And so that that was sort of the beginning of that part of you know my yoga life it happened back then. And I actually even my senior in high school helped teach it, which I always forget about. People are like, "How long you've been teaching?" I say, "20 years," but I'm like, actually, a lot longer. But you know, then it fell out of my life for a while, and I found it again later. And I started, I was in the art world in the 90s, um, very in the heart of the art world. I was showing my work a lot, like all over the place and um, doing pretty well um, and working at MoMA, lecturing and writing for MoMA. And I um, was unbelievable, stressed out beyond anything, like so stressed out. It's just I was all over the place and you know, it's the art world. So you're, you party all night and you like <laughs> you know, you, you're like working in a studio and then you party until three or four, you know, and it was nuts. So, um, I found yoga finally. I found my way back to yoga. I kept going to like the gym cause there, there was all that existed then was like Jiva Mukti, Dharma Mitra. And I didn't really know anything about that, you know, int- integral yoga. That was like it. And I really, that was kind of it. And I, so I kept going to the gym and not liking the teachers. And then finally I went one day and I found one I liked and got very involved in it and then was doing yoga. And that really helped me find balance in my life. And then I went to my first kirtan, which with Krishna. I had gone like to Jiva Mukti because my teacher dragged me next door from crunch to Jiva Mukti. And then I went um, on my first, like, serious one in this retreat we did out in the Hamptons. Um, and it was Amy Apollody, actually, who I, who I ended up later doing my teacher training with. And so I went out there and it was like this big deal, Christian Das. I was like, who's Krishna Das? Who's Krishna? You know, <laughs> I was like, I didn't know anything. I hadn't done teacher training yet. I knew nothing. And I was like, I don't know what's happening, but my skin is vibrating. I don't know what's going on. And then and the cool kid part of me was like, I don't know about this, this is like a little weird, you know, cause I might be too cool for this. And then the other part of me was like, every cell in my body is now vibrating, something's happening. <laughs> and that was August, right before 9-11. Yeah. So um, I was lucky that I had that experience then because then it, it, it brought me, it was the first time I'd ever done a weekend retreat, anything like that. And and I found that after that happened, all, after nine eleven, all that felt, all that I wanted to do was like get on my mat in company and move. And it was really intense. It was an intense need. And I felt like I had nothing to say. And which is very unusual for me. And I felt like I had <laughs> nothing that i could make artwork out of like i like words had failed me and images were failing me and um the only thing that felt meaningful was moving and breathing in in a way because like all those people down the street from me couldn't anymore you know because i live you know with it i watched it live you know from where i live in the village so that i ended up doing a yoga teacher training and i know desire to be a yoga teacher and I was I can remember even being like yeah you should do it you know there are no immersions then there were no, like if you really wanted to learn you either had to go to you know India or you had to um do a teacher training because there there was nothing it wasn't set up for just learning you know as a student and I w- I kept saying I don't want to be a teacher I don't want to I'm already doing I'm in the art world it makes me no money I don't need another thing that makes me no money and she was like just do it. <laughs> you know like yes. and I still hold to that to this day, even though I'm doing all the things that make me no money. But give you yeah. something. Yeah. Yeah. But, <laughs> but um, but I'm fulfilled creatively and spiritually. So it was really, it was a big, it was a colossal turning point in, in my life as it was in so many people's lives. And and I have a theory that it's that the burgeoning yoga scene which exploded in the mm-hmm. 2000s was largely because of that because you know a lot of stuff starts in New York and LA in this country as we all know and it was our teacher training was huge it was like 26 people or something and there were teacher trainings everywhere and like everyone would just wanted solace everyone just wanted to be in company and community and and I emerged from it being like oh my god am I gonna be a yoga teacher too I'm like I think I am (laughs) But also the first weekend of it, I met my main teacher, who's my main teacher to this day, um, Dr. Douglas Brooks, who is one of the great living scholars of Hindu Tantra. And, And all of my nerdy MoMA, you know, whatever, writing and, you know, art self was like, you mean, this is yoga too? And that was what sealed it for me. I would not have become a yoga teacher if it weren't for my dive into yoga philosophy and I've studied with him nonstop for the past 20 years. So
1: do you find that because I know starting, I had a similar experience feeling it in my body. I'm, I'm not a body person. I didn't wasn't a dancer or a gymnast or really interested in any kind of physical exercise. Um, and I first, my first class was at Om Yoga in New York when it was mm-hmm. on 14th Street. Oh, that's right. And, Om
2: was there. I forgot yeah. Om was there.
1: And and I remember just kind of like, I embellish a little bit. I've told the story a few times that this dank room with water stains and the skeleton in the corner and, you know, this teacher, Lippy, I was, I had to take her class. And so, of course, I took her class and... I remembered feeling really kind of confused and frustrated and sore and didn't know where the hell I was, why I was there at all. But as I closed the door to the studio, I felt something magical had happened and I didn't know quite what it was, but I didn't want that train leaving the station without me. And so that was what kind of brought me back. But I found that I needed the container of the actual studio to show up every day to be a part of this community. So I know that you have practices that you do daily. I've heard you say you've got a gazillion practices that you do. So I'm curious, like at what point did your practices reveal themselves as a part of a sadhana, a daily practice, and when how you brought it into your life and how that has kind of affected or influenced your your life as a new yorker i mean you live in a place that is you know, we live up floors, there's not a whole lot of ground, there's, you know, and a lot of noise and a lot of activity. And, you know, we, if we have these energetic bodies that allow for this low emitting light to be emitting from all of us, then in a city, and I lived in New York for 17 years, and I fucking love it, energized by it. But yeah. I can see how, like, I'm asked, how do you integrate the practices in your daily life? And how has it influenced your life as a New Yorker? and an artist. Oh goodness. So interesting.
2: Well, part of what had happened to me in the art world is that I had lost my joy in making art. It didn't feel like a joyful practice or a spiritual practice to me anymore. And a lot of that was just because I was so in the New York art world. And obviously I na- navigated it fairly well, you know, like with the book and the this and the that, but also i was shown my work all over the place. I was going on artist residencies and stuff. It just I, and to this day, I'm not, I'm not a fan of the gallery scene and the art world, and I was very much in it, but I kept, I worked, unfortunately, with a lot of people who were less than honest and um, gallery owners and stuff, and it really um, gave me, a, left me with a bad taste in my mouth. So I think I, after 9-11, the question was, well, what do I want my life to be like? Like, if I knew I was gonna be gone tomorrow, what would I do today? And I know that sounds obvious or trite, but it but it's, it's still is a profound question. You know, There's a reason why we think of, say that all the time. And I realized it was not going to a gallery opening. I mean, as much as I love art, I don't, I don't need the networking piece very much. You know, I'm not, I'm not interested. And at heart, I'm a little bit of a nerd, even though I'm very um, social and, <laughs> and I really love people and stuff, but I'm also kind of like, I'm really okay staying home with my book. You know, or drawing, or writing, or whatever. So, my sadhana really emerged from my studies with Douglas, Mm -hmm. and um, and I've studied with so many other people too, like Sally Kempton and like all these other people, many many people, and there are lots of people I'm interested in studying with who I have not yet. But he was—he's really my main. Like what he said resonated for me. Like when you hear someone speaking, you're like, well, that's kind of what I think, and you're just putting it into words. And then the vastness of the traditions were incredible. And I went to India and in pilgrimage with him for the first time in 2008, I think. Mm-hmm. I think it was 2008. Yeah, I think it was 2008. <laughs> um, and that was completely, when I stepped onto the stones in Chidambaram, Nataraja's temple, I felt like I had never not been there. It felt like home. And it was none of the like, and I mean, it's like, you know, it was my first time in India and I just, every bit of it was ecstatic. It was beautiful and it was pilgrimage, you know, so it wasn't like, you know, getting dressed up to go to the club in Delhi or whatever. You know? <laughs> it was, it was like, you better, you gotta wear a sari or a, you know, or sawwar kameez every day because we're going to temples and we have to do the extra effort to demonstrate that we care about the traditions that we're being respectful. It's not like here where like, if you were sorry go to the temple, are doing like Westerner, you know? But um, it's different. Like in Tamil Nadu, which is much more, which is really deep temple culture. Um, it's a sign of respect.
0: And, <laughs> and, and
2: that's very clear. Like the priests will make that clear and people will make that clear. And if you don't dress for it, no, people won't be rude to you but you'll just be sort of like oh well they're not choosing to really engage whereas i'll wander around in a sorry and there'll be people will come up to me and be like oh come here and people will be like oh come have you know darshan and and it's um it's very kind it's 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 you know they get what you're there for as opposed to the person who's in jeans with just like a long shirt on you know or something
1: making the effort you were talking about losing the joy from the art world and then making the effort. And I know that it's going to seem like a a strange um, segue, but and I know I'm also probably mixing my metaphors here because I think this is more of a Buddhist thing than a Hindu thing. But the four immeasurables, you know, the one that of the joyful effort, that there is no sort of boundary on the joy we can have in the effort we make, even, you know, for me doing dishes, you know, finding the joy in the daily efforts of things. And finding the joy in, you know, even doing this podcast, I never put on lipstick or throw, put my eyebrows in, you know, do this stuff. But I, I make the effort before I come on, even if it's never seen, just to kind of arrive in a place that feels like I've made the effort to meet you where you are something some effort if it's making a cup of tea I know that you often have your tea and I thought rather than having my coffee I'm gonna have a cup of tea when we have this Oh, conversation. That's so nice. uh, <laughs> which I love also I love the sensuality of coffee but the ritual of tea is just like a, oh. Douglas Brooks I've heard his name obviously a gazillion times and have not yet had the opportunity to study with him but he is definitely on my bucket list and just listening to you talk about him just gives me that feeling, Teresa, that you gave me in that first anatomy training.
0: (laughs) Talk a lot about your, like putting on your sorry and going showed that you were fully committed, that you were like stepping in and really wanted to embrace the learning and your time there. And I think that kind of feels like your sadhana, like how can you share with us some of those practices that I find at sometimes that people feel like they, they'll say things like, I don't have time for that, or I try to fit that in, or I try to go to my cushion and do my meditation. Um, and I think it could be a challenge at some time for some people at some times. So do you have any insights about your sadhana, how you fit it in? How how do you view what your sadhana is?
2: Um. Sagna is a is a joy for me, actually, and it and it I know it enriches. It's like salt. It enriches like just makes everything more flavorful. <laughs> so um, I never thought of that before, but uh, it's just kind of how I feel about it. But I feel I mean my sadna is very what I hold myself to on a daily basis. Which even sometimes then, like I actually didn't do my thing this morning. I usually do. Those are my boyfriends in Brooklyn, and I it was like rushing back here for an appointment. But usually in the morning, I I make it easy. I sit up in bed and I do some of it there. And I usually chant the Gayatri with the set of mudras. And then I do the prana um, mantra. I mean, I name all the pranas with their mudras. And then I do um, a Sri Vidya chant, which is sort of of the tradition that I study and very meaningful to me. And those are the three things I do every morning. Like I almost never miss. And if I do, I just do them later in the day. But I like to start my day with that. And also a very important thing about my sadhana, which is sort of funny. I want the first words out of my mouth to be sweet every day. And so I say om namah shivaya before I do anything else. So. That's beautiful. <laughs> That's, That's so and beautiful. I just, it's like, I want that to set the tone for my day and I move forward from there, whatever else happens. So, I mean, I also do asana and I, I try, I either do pranayama or meditation. It's like, I try to do, you know, I try to fit it in, but if nothing else, I've done my, my mudras and said my key
0: mantras and, and connected in that way. Do mantras change throughout times in your life? Like, does that morning mantra change? Um, and if it does, um, how long do you use it? Is it just kind of this natural now I'm ready for this next and it just organically flows or well these three I do every morning. Um there might always mantras
2: and with the with the mudras and but there are different times. Yeah, I, I actually it's funny, I have this Facebook group called Durga Sadhana, and it's um that I just created for fun. And it is like over two, it's like 250 people in it or something. And I just periodically, I'm like, let's chant to Durga 108 times for the next blah, blah, blah of days. And people are like, great. And it's like people from all over the world, a lot who have taken my online courses, but also just other people and, and friends. And it's really mixed Western and Indian. And, and um, it's really nice. And it's just, there's nothing to it, there's nothing for sale, there's nothing. Mm-hmm. it's purely for sadna. It's purely for, um, empowerment. And sometimes I'll post like if it's Navaratri, I'll post every day, you know, one of the forms of Durga or, um, you know, different images of Durga that I love that are beautiful and just to create, it's just to create communities, just nothing but sweetness. Mm-hmm. So that's important. But so for those times, I'm like, okay, I'm going to chant a Durga every day. Now, right now I'm doing like a Ganesha, um, Thing so I'm I'm also doing the Ganesha mantra every day a a particular Ganesha mantra every day his mula mantra his root mantra um so yeah it does change for me and then sometimes like there are deities I love who I love to chant to at different times but I chanted when I was going through cancer treatment which is a whole I'm like dropping that down in the middle of the conversation I already chanted the Gayatri every day but that's when it became like really really essential because I'm like I woke up again, I get another day. And I just felt like it was an important, and I had a, mur- a beautiful Murti, I'm looking at him across the room, uh, Surya. And I slept on my couch because I have stairs and another floor and it was just too much for me to even go up and down the stairs during chemo. So I put him at the foot of my, uh, very, very fabulous couch. <laughs> so I slept on my couch, which was kind of fun. Anyway, it was Surya behind me. And of course, Gayatri is to Sabator, to Surya. But the Gayatri chant itself is the goddess. So you get the god and the goddess all one. And that, so that, that's, I feel like that's a giving thanks every morning.
1: So beautiful. You know, we're, we're rounding out, we're finishing up this season and we've been um, modeling the conversations based on the koshas, based on, you know, the different layers. And I, I just, I made the assumption, obviously, you know what the koshas are. And the bliss body and you just having listened to your conversation the other day on, you know, why myth matters, you know, and you talk, we talked about, we didn't talk, you talked about Joseph Campbell. And uh, I, I say we because I feel like there's so much crossover and there's so much we could talk about. And there's just so much that I'm curious about and want to dive deeper. And of course, we know Joseph Campbell is famous for saying, follow your bliss. And so even just that, the word bliss in that, one of his most famous things in talking about myth and stories and deities and all of these things, I mean, you know, in the world that we're all connected and there is no that, there is no other, you know, that it feels very harmonious that we get to talk about all these different things in the sense of integration And so, you know, if you were to, and we've gone through it in the first five episodes, you know, defining the koshas through our stories and stuff, but how would you define, I think it's important um, to have different voices. I had a teacher once in one of my trainings who said, if your students aren't getting it, and it's not their fault, find another way to say it and you know i've heard teachers you know just kind of use their thesaurus to change words out in order to change what they're saying but it doesn't really change what they're saying it just makes it sound fancier so i think it's it's great to have different perspectives and voices and lineages and teachings On the same thing so that we also don't get stuck in the habit of our own lineage or the own that this is the one way this is the only way to look at it Um, we're trying to sort of expand the boundaries around how we you know interact with the teachings in different ways and so I'd love to hear what how you would define ananda maya kosha that central kosha and then maybe move from there into the deity or the story that you feel is most Um, Related, relatable to it, because you're such a beautiful storyteller, and I think to have you here and not have you tell a story would be a disservice to all of us. And I'm like, what's
2: going to be funny is I'm like, okay, which one should I tell? I'm going to decide and tell it off the top of my head, (laughs) but I think I know which one I'll tell, Um, and I'll squeeze, it's a long story, I'll squeeze into a short amount of time, but um, Anandamaya Kosha, I mean, it, it was sort of perfect, because the temple I go to, everyone just refers to it as Chidambaram, you know, Chidambaram, that's the name of the town, but it's the Nataraja temple, like on earth. I mean, um, there are others, I'm sure, in like Malaysia and here and there, but this is like, it's a major pilgrimage site, and it is the temple of Shiva Nataraja, and there are five Shiva Nataraja temples associated with the elements, and I've been to all but one of them. I haven't been to the air temple, I've been to all the other ones, but Nataraja temple, where Shiva dances, his dance of bliss, his dance of Ananda, his Ananda Tandava, is the one associated with ether. And so it is because he's dancing his dance of bliss. So bliss and ether and and spirit and and all this stuff are are really central there. So in in some ways, it's kind of the highest of the high of Shiva temples, although I'm sure other Shiva temples would disagree. (laughs) I'm highly biased. (laughs) But, um, but it's an important one. And I mean, it's, it's like when I say a temple, it's like a Walden medieval village. It's, a, it's over 40 acres and with tons of sub temples and hundreds of thousands of sculptures. Like, I mean, it's just, it's vast. And I've been going there since I guess 2008, I think that's right. And there's just still like every time I see new, tons of new things that I've never seen before. And it's just unbelievable. And when I think of the koshas, I think of the layers and sheaths of experience. And I think it's interesting to reference this in terms of a temple too, because the temple has enclosures, all different enclosures, and you work your way toward the heart. So it's different because there are actually like nine enclosures, but it's very hard to figure out what's what. And when you're in it, you don't know what's going on. You're like, am I? you know,
0: <laughs> and you're usually blissed out
2: if you're me. So you're like, sort of like, I don't know, where was I just a minute ago? <laughs> but um but it's similar it's like and so all these things all these layers of reality exist simultaneously but they're also um their own selves you know so anamaya kosha the food body you know it's it's not in the tradition i study in primary tradition i study in it's not lesser than and this differentiates it from most yogas which the body is lower and you're you're after the spiritual world you know you're trying to like shed property and get toward purusha shed the material for the spiritual so there's a hierarchy there Mm -hmm. and the tradition that i engage in it's not a hierarchy it's just different aspects of existence so it's interesting to think the koshas in that way because you have your 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 food body, and you had all the things in between, and then you have your bliss body. And then it's, it's also interesting because that's one that's the bliss body is supposed to be anandamaya kosha, it's supposed to be the one deepest inside. But actually, whenever you see drawings of it, it's the outermost one. So it's like, it's kind of funny. Like, even that, like, how do you depict this concept is interesting? Is it so inside that it's outside, or it's so outside that it's inside? Like, ah. But I like the idea that, you know, we're, we're, it's a householder point of view, and we are embodied. Beings living possibly, hopefully, if we're lucky, a spiritual life, you know. And and I really that just makes sense to me, you know, if everything's the divine, which it all is, because we're all part of the everything that exists, that means that our bodies are divine too. I mean, it goes to Walt. I always go to Walt Whitman on that one, you know, divine am I inside and out, you know, but there's deep truth to that. And, And Walt Whitman was studying, you know, Indian. Philosophy. So, well, all of those transcendentalists like were reading that stuff. So, Emerson, and yeah. So, it's kind of interesting. I don't know how much he studied, but he was certainly aware of it and the concepts. So, I think it's a really beautiful. Most traditions are attainment oriented, like you're trying to get toward enlightenment.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: And that is not the tradition I'm in. So, I'm in a kind of weird outlier tradition. But it makes sense to me, and it wouldn't work. Like if I were chasing enlightenment every day of my life and saying body bad, spirit good, body bad, spirit good, that just doesn't work for
1: me. No, neither. So and you wrote something so beautiful the other day about um, when you lost the body you loved, you discovered mm. that it was holy. That yeah. you know, there was this, you know, journey through, and I think sometimes you, these concepts can become so heady and esoteric. That we forget that we're actually living these things out. You know, we're experiencing things that bring these teachings to life, to light. And um, just following you. And I hope everyone listening to you follows you on Instagram and wherever you are on social media, because your writing is so beautiful and it it, it inhabits like every word you write inhabits these teachings. And it's so accessible, but in, in no way is it dumbing down. It is meeting you where you are and allowing us to meet you where you are, where you're meeting us, where we are. And it's just, it is so beautiful. And listening to you talk about Anandamaya this way, and yes, I think Teresa and I have had these conversations, too, and agree totally with, with this idea of the, the koshas being an aspect, that one is not bigger than the other. Um, but you just, you are an example in your life, and it's just, you know... Thank you. That's
2: a huge compliment. Thank you. There's a simultaneity to it. I guess mm-hmm. that's the thing. It's like, we're in all the koshas all at once. And, and, and the question is like, when we're, when we're in this place, how can we be more fluent, more artistic? And it's not a coincidence that Nataraja is, is the form of Shiva that dances,
0: mm-hmm.
2: you know, and, and he's the artist, you know, because once you've moved through all the other koshas, like it's bliss. It's like, if there's artists, it's artistry and creativity and beauty. And of course I found myself to, you know, the deity who is the artist, <laughs> you know? So,
1: so what's the story?
2: Oh my goodness. This is, is, the um, story? <laughs> this is such a good story. Um, it's a really long story that I managed to tell in like a paragraph in my book, <laughs> which is like funny, very, very funny. Vishnu returns from the forest. He's been deep in the forest and he goes back up to where he lives and he reclines on his multi-headed serpent couch named Shesha. (laughs) There are lots of side stories to this. So I'll try to stick with one narrative and questions will pop up, but I won't be able to do all of that. So, and he's agitated and he's moving and he's shifting and Shesha, his multi-headed serpent couch, everyone should have one, says to him, Like what, Lord, my Lord, what is it? Why are you so agitated? Why are you moving and shifting all the time? Why can't you relax? And Vishnu says, I have just been to the forest and in the forest, deep in the forest, I saw um, Lord Shiva's dance. And it was his Ananda Tandava and it was his dance of bliss. And when he danced, he revealed the structure of the entire universe and it was beautiful and disturbing and and. Heartrending and infuriating, and, and it was everything, it was everything, it was so beautiful, and Shisha says, well, I, I want to see the dance, too, how will I, how can I do it, and Vishnu says to him, well, in order to see it, you must embody, see, this is all linking back together to this idea of embodiment not being problematic, it's, it's part of who we are, Anamaya Kosha, so he, so he says, okay, you, you have, I will embody, and go down, and so he, this part is all a little fuzzy about the up and down, but he comes down from Vaikuntha and he burrows down into the earth as certain, and, and because he's a serpent, right? So serpents, you know, usually means cobra, it comes from the earth. So, and then he pops up into the forest. And when he pops up, he tumbles into the Anjali mudra that a woman is there for, and she's praying for a child. And, um, to, and there she gets her, her little child and, and she's so shocked that he, she's like, oh, and he tumbles onto the ground. So the noise he makes when he hits her is put, pat, and he tumbles into her Anjali. So this being is Patanjali. And mm. so Patanjali, <laughs> that part delights me so much, I could just end there. But um, so Patanjali wanders all through the forest and he's thinking, I want to see Lord Shiva dance. I want to see Lord Shiva dance. I, I want to learn from him. I want to see it. I want to experience it and he can't find him. And he's just like, what can I do? Like, how can I find him? He looks high, he looks low, he's deep, deep, deep in the forest. And um, and this is the tilai Forest, which is the forest of tilai trees, which are, they're toxic and they're sap. But if you're of the forest and you and you are inside it, you're protected. So it's this, right away we have this dynamic of like, you know, danger and safety and everything. And it's shadowy, the forest is shadowy. We all know from every myth, it's the place where transformation and strange, mysterious things happen and things meet, come apart, and the shadows are mysterious. You can't really see what's going on. So he wanders the forest floor for ages, years maybe. And finally he lies down and and falls asleep. There are different ways of telling this. this, is the way I tell it. He falls asleep. And in his dreams, he envisions there's this fire, and it's a homa, a fire, a fire offering. And there's a being chanting and releasing offerings into the fire. And, and when he comes to, when he wakes up again, he's next to a Shiva linga. So the form, the uncarved block, the form that is all potential that is Shiva. And this. Shivalinga has been smeared with ashes, with vibhuti and kumkum and, and, and has surrounding it the most exquisite white orchids he's ever seen. They're huge, they're the size of both his hands and they're so pristine that not even the bees, they're un, it says in the text, unsullied even by the bees. Like they're not even touched by the bees. They're so pristine. And he's like, I got it. I can make Shiva dance. Obviously someone else has been here but I can get Shiva to dance if I can find those flowers and make this offering. So he looks high and he looks low. He can't find them anywhere. And he looks and looks and there's a couple more episodes of like falling asleep and waking up. And again, it's been tended to. And finally, one time he wakes up and he's sitting on one side and he looks across at the Linga and he sees another being sitting on the other side. And this being, and Patanjali, oh, I neglected to mention this. Patanjali is half snake and half man. <laughs> so, because you know, he, he had to get into the forest, but he had to also embody as a like some sort of a being. And he looks across the Shivalinga, and on the other side of it is sitting this being who is mostly man but has tiger paws instead of hands and feet. And They look at each other and they address each other. And he says, hello, you know, I am Patanjali and I'm visiting the forest. And who are you? And he says, I am Viagrapada, which means tiger, tiger hands or whatever, tiger paws. And I live here. I am of the forest. And Patanjali says, well, can I ask you, where did you get those blossoms, those offerings? And he said, oh, you know, I I prayed to Shiva for these um, tiger paws. So that I can climb to the top of the trees and find the orchids unsullied by the bees and offer them to him. And at this, Patanjali gets what's going on and he realizes that that's the Agrippada's offering. He's from the forest, this is his thing. Patanjali's come from under the ground. And so he realizes that his offering needs to be the things of the ground of where he's come from. So the seeds from the orchids come from above the trees where Viagrapada is coming from and from under the ground. So sky and earth are meeting in the middle in the forest. And and Patanjali goes and gathers all the beautiful things from the forest floor, the seeds, the this, the that. And together they make the offering together and they chant the bijas. So both with their own seeds, see it's a bija, bija is a seed and bija mantra. And they chant the mantra together. And, yet, and they begin on either side to chant the mantra. They're saying on either side of this linga. It begins to twist and turn. And suddenly Nataraja emerges from the linga doing his Ananda Tandava, the dance of bliss. And it is everything. <laughs> it's the most incredible thing Patanjali's ever seen. And when he finishes, he says to Patanjali, Well, since you're a stranger in the forest, you know, I welcome you to our to the tillai forest. And is there anything else I can offer to you? And Patanjali recites a couple of sutras from the. There are different ways the story is told, but they're, But generally it's he recites a couple. And, and Shiva is so pleased with him that he offers him the gift of grammar and the gift of, um, of Ayurveda. So all these structured things. And so like all these structures. And it's important. I wish I had a little Shiva I could hold up because he's sitting on the side of Shiva where his arm is blocking his view. And so Patanjali's approach to classical yoga is like, there's something there, but we can't, yes, but we can't quite see it. And it's just past that arm because the heart is slightly concealed. He's only open to one side, his leg and arm are crossing over. So this idea of classical yoga, that there's something that you're trying to attain, that's a little bit beyond your, being, your vision. And so it's an attainment model classical yoga. But Patanjali is very pleased. He says, thank you so much. This has been wonderful. And he pops back down the hole and he exits the forest. He's like, it's been beautiful, Viagrapada, thanks. (laughs) Mm
1: -hmm. So then
2: Viagrapada is left with Shiva. And Shiva says, Shiva Nataraja says to him, well, is there anything I can offer to you? And Viagrapada's response is, yes, I have a question. Is there more? Are there more dances? And Shiva says, well, yes, you know, there are seven dances. There's Sapta, Tandava. But um, the Ananda Tandava holds them all. But there are seven dances total. So the purpose of the other dances are just for beauty, for artistry, for self expression, for everything that makes life beautiful and creative and worth living. And he shows him all the dances. And then that's it. It's kind of the end of the story.
1: So I didn't talk about it here, but in our question to you earlier, um, when we asked you what your mission and your passion was, you said creativity and beauty. And this seems to be, you know, a story (laughs) that talks of creativity and beauty, among many other things, of course, but and, you know, misappropriated apostrophes misplaced apostrophes, um, for the gift of grammar, just the gift of grammar. Made me think of that. That is so beautiful. Thank you for telling that story. Yeah. Oh, also, thank
0: you for uh, listening. You've also mentioned that we're every character in the myth. When, when there's a myth, we can in, envision ourselves as every character in there and start to draw the myth inside, make it part of our life that we are embodied and we live, um, live through there. Can you give us just a couple from that story of how you um, relate the story to the individual who is experiencing themselves as each of the characters? Mm, That's beautiful. That's a great question. Um, Thank you for asking
2: it. And I also want to give credit to, you know, one of the main things Douglas taught me early on, Douglas Brooks, is you're every character in the story. Mm-hmm. So that was really, that's definitely coming from him. And so I always want to give credit where credit is due, but it, you get to be the landscape. You get to be, um, you get to be the forest because you are a place that is both sacred and toxic. You know, we have it all within our bodies, literally, as a, someone who's been through a cancer, I can tell you for sure. Um, but also, you know, in our spirits and in our mentalities and in our hearts, there's the, the ugliest Ugliest stuff and the most beautiful stuff, and everything in between. So, we get to be the forest itself, and it's a place of shifting light and shadows. So, it's mysterious and hard to fathom, and we're never quite clear on what's going on. So, we get to be the forest. That's one of the characters. And then we get to be, you know, we get to be Patanjali, the seeker who is yearning, you know, in this way. Which is funny because, you know, he ends up being, no one knows for sure whether the Patanjali is one person or many people. And, you know, it wasn't that unusual a name. But, you know, who is this Patanjali who, like, is wants the specific thing and is, and is chasing it and after it and pursuing it. And and um, who wants, like, the key to yoga, who wants to understand the universe. So we are that person. We are that seeker. We're the ones who wander into the woods, whether the woods is our own heart, our own mind, or the world, or anything else. and. We want to understand things. We want structures that help us understand the world, you know? But then we also get to be the who is just like, I want the beauty. I I don't, I don't, you know, the structure, I got that, but I want to know, is it more than just structure? Is it more? And, and he's sitting on the other side he sees into the heart. He sees past the arm and the leg and he sees right into the heart of Shiva. So he's getting He's getting that there's, that there's always more, you're, it's never done, you're never complete, you're never finished because art means that nothing's ever complete or finished. And, and, we, and we can live in a question, in the question and that's a creative, artistic, beautiful way to live. I also neglected to mention <laughs> on a side note that the Anandatanava reveals the five acts of Shiva, creation, maintenance, dissolution, concealment, and revelation, which of course, how the universe works. So, and all that is a part of creativity. So we get to be, we do all those things. So we are also Shiva. We get to be Shiva. There's no separation, you know, between us and the divine. There's just discernments and particularities and individualities, but it's all one vast tapestry.
0: Found that to be a really great nugget that I got when I started taking your 30 days um, with the goddess that You know, the goddesses are representations of our emotions, our thoughts, who we are, and we connect with different goddesses at different times based on where we are in our life or what we're going through, right? How can we incorporate that energy? But the idea of shifting my perspective from this goddess's name is Dorga to all of these qualities of each individual goddess live within me and as I learn more about them, read about them, look at their mantras, um, I'm able to draw that energy and kind of unite it and connect it within myself, but also in a much bigger and broader perspective.
2: Oh, thank you for saying that. Yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of endless once you step into it.
1: I think we are nearing the end of our time. And so we have actually gone a little bit past. Do you have just a few more minutes, Susanna? Okay, because what we'd love to do, I mean, you talked about that, you know, there's really nothing separate, and we could have a whole other conversation. I wouldn't talk about, you know, the body is sacred. I wanna talk about, you know, and I go, no, that's an um, um, Anamaya Kosha, which was, is a different guest, a different time, a different thing, but they're all interdependent, connected. And this idea that we are incarnate, we are here in a body. So why would it be less sacred than any other part of what it contains? But that's another podcast. That's another time. But in the spirit of things not being separate, uh, one of the things we had asked was what your favorite um, quote was, and you gave a mantra, and the mantra really speaks to this. The it really it, it encapsulates everything. It brings it ties it all up with the ribbon. But the ribbon may be a little frayed in places. It's a loose places. It can be tight in other places. You know, nothing is perfect, and. I have a feeling about Ananda Maya that it gives us an opportunity for glimpses of that light. You know, you talked about certain traditions chasing enlightenment and my feeling has always been that because we're in a body, we don't live in an enlightened state. We get to have glimpses. We get to have flashes of that enlightenment that comes from understanding who we are truly. And that is that we are interdependent and not separate from anything. <laughs> so um If you could tell us what your favorite quote is, and then maybe lead us, our listeners and us in the mantra, so that we can begin, at least some of us begin, some of us are continuing to practice in real ways, harnessing, drawing in, incorporating, you know, synthesizing these energies that are not, they don't live outside of us. So we get to hear them. It seems like it's outside there, you know, like our mind is part of our brain, but we I can still tell you what's in my refrigerator right now and I'm nowhere near my refrigerator. So I know that it can also be outside. But so here we go, mantra, quote, give us a little practice, some of that you know, juicy, <laughs> Susanna, yumminess. Oh, it's so funny. I,
2: you know, it's funny, I don't know why it popped up, but I have it up here in my bookshelves, Tat right behind me. Um, that no one can see but you too, but tatva must see. And it's, it's you know, you are that. It basically means you are that. And the, immediately that was my reaction. That was my favorite quote, but it's so funny because I have quotes about like literature that I love and art that I love, you <laughs> know, like, so many things. And for some reason, that one just was like what I was feeling at that moment.
1: And- Did you say each I word said, clearly, each of the words? Oh yeah, tat. Tatvaan. A-S-I. <S-A-S-I>.
2: Yeah. so t a t t am a and it means you are that and it's the recognition of the self the in its way the individual self and the universal self and recognition that we're not separate and recognition that you can find yourself oh there it is <laughs> i'm that yeah you can find yourself in, in everyone, really, even people who are despicable, there's something, you know, you are, you are that, you are that, you are that. And you can look around and say, like, I am that I am the flowers that I have over here. I have books I have here. I am each of you. I am, you know, I am universal. I am individual. I am, the, you know, and I think it's just a way it's kind of like I always think of Das saying, like, you know, treat everyone you meet like like they're God and drag, you know, which is actually, I have to say that's one of my favorite quotes ever <laughs> too. I could have just depending if you had <laughs> ask me a day earlier, what is this? Because I think it's such a beautiful, generous um, way of looking at the world. And it's kind of the same. It kind of means the same thing at the end of the day. It's it's if you can see yourself in others and in things and the people around you. It shifts the world. It changes things.
1: That makes sense. So Did we
2: chant it a few times. We could. It's funny. I never chant that. It's
1: not a chanter.
2: No, I don't chant that particular mm-hmm. mantra. It's interesting. I've never heard it chanted either.
1: Well, we don't so, have to, you know. I'm break wondering, the, could
2: we do Om Namah Shivaya?
1: Yeah, sure. We can do it. <laughs> Just a casual that chant. Yes, yes.
2: definitely. I, I chant when I'm walking down the street. That I chant. When I'm, <laughs> you know.
1: We did when a I little Om um, Gham Namaha before we came on.
2: <laughs> oh, you did! Oh, yeah, my God. I love him. <laughs> and um, Shiva's son, so you know, it's, it, absolutely. And um, so Om Shivaya. So I'll, I'll I'll share a little practice, which is one of my favorite practices when I do all the time, and I'll, I think I can put it into words in a way that will be clear for people um, because it's it it has a little visual with it. So. Om, um, you know, is in the realm of everything that exists in Nama, Shivaya. So that's the five acts of Shiva, creation, maintenance, dissolution, concealment, and revelation. So when you say this mantra, you're saying the Ananda Tandava, you're saying the universe, you are, and of course it's vibration, is Shakti, is the goddess. So you have the God and the goddess all at once. You have the structure of the entire universe in Nama Shivaya. So Om is the great locator. It's like the thing that holds it all. And then namashivaya. So this is what you can do. You can hold up your hands and you can put the base of the palms together and then touch the thumbs. Na, touch the pinkies. Ma, touch the index fingers. Shi, touch the ring fingers. Va, middle fingers. Ya, namashivaya, 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 namashivaya. "Namashivaya." And my teacher, my main teacher, Douglas, taught me this in front of Dakshinamurti, which is the form of Nataraja when he sits down to speak and become a teacher. So he's the teacher, Shiva's teacher. And so that's where um, the boys in the temple chant. And they learn how to chant all the Vedas. They sit in circles and chant to each other. And this is where um, Douglas taught me this. (laughs) It's very sweet. So again, base the palms. You're going back and forth. You're going thumb. Pinky, index, ring, middle. You're building your way back and forth toward the center. So, and there's so many fives as we know. So, um, so na, thumbs, ma, pinkies, index, shi, ring, va, middle finger, yeah and just go namashibaya, mm-hmm. namashibaya. And it takes it takes a minute to like go do the back and forth, and then once you get if you do it all the time, I do it. Public places and no one knows that I'm chanting to Shiva. <laughs>
1: you know I always say to Teresa when she comes into this um, this mudra. I always, do you ever watch The Simpsons? Yeah, <laughs> I always think of it as Mr. Burns. <laughs> oh my God, it's Burns. Mr. Burns. <laughs>
2: <laughs> That's really funny. I,
1: I am that. that. I am that too. I am also
2: Burns. So let's chant
1: Om Namah Shivaya.
2: Mm-hmm. I'll, I'll, and people can play with this if they want to. It's such a beautiful little practice. Maybe we'll do it like a little murmur. It'll be nice like a little murmur so we can do this. So we'll just say we'll do the first one will be om namashivaya. And then we'll just do namashivaya, 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 namashivaya. But I have to keep count. We're going to do it 11 times, which, which is like the hook. Mm-hmm. I don't know why, but it, it does. It's where it glues it in your head. And this is what tons of teachers say. Um, so lift up your hands, oh namashivaya namashivaya, 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 Shivaya. Namashivaya. 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 last one. Namashivaya. Namashivaya.
1: Namashivaya what a perfect way to to end this conversation this season i am just thrilled and so honored that you came to be with us thank you
2: thank you so much for having me I'm, i'm honored to be asked so thank you
1: well folks that's a wrap for season one of anecdotal anatomy science and stories we want to thank our guest susanna harwood rubin for her grace skills beauty and time when asked what her favorite quote was at that moment, she responded, tat tvam asi, which translates as, you are that. This is pure reflection of connection. What we see, we are. That is bliss. What a wonderful
0: way to end our first season. Thank you so much for participating in the conversation by listening, engaging on social, Sending us messages with your stories and questions. We're so grateful for your presence. Thank you for helping us grow by clicking like, follow, subscribe. If you like what you're hearing, please write a review and share this podcast with your people and swing by our YouTube channel for all of our teasers and other video content. We're currently preparing for season two, and we're so excited to continue these conversations. Until then, stay tuned for Surprise Drops. Our mission is to create community and connect through our individual and collective stories. Share your stories, questions, and musings by emailing us at anecdotalanatomy at gmail.com or posting on our Facebook or Instagram under Anecdotal Anatomy.
1: We have an incredible team of creatives who brought their A-game and full hearts to help us bring season one to fruition. Thank you, Judith George, for your skillful editing, producing, and coaching us through the bumpy parts. Keith Kenny for composing and performing our music with nothing more than the direction, "Eh, Grateful Dead meets Krishna Das. Cindy Fatsis for capturing images we didn't even know were possible. Becky Williams for our awesome logo, Larry Macy for impromptu and reliable IT support, and Stacy Brass-Russell for your mad coaching skills, patience, and love. Most importantly to you, our audience, without you, none of this matters. We are your hosts for Anecdotal Anatomy. She is Teresa Tobin Macy.
0: Hey, is Sherry Sadoff-Hank. Until season two, peace, love, and stories.